We're in Philippians chapter 4. And to keep you on your feet, I plan to just dive right in. So let's stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord. If you're able to stand one last time. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Actually, let's just start at 1, just for a little, because I'm going to reference it. 1 says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you must stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true yoke fellow, to help these women who have labored with me for the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be apparent to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, um, in these words that are coming up nearing the end of Paul's letter. Uh, I was taken this week by the perspective of what life in you does and how it should reorient our thinking, our entire perception, perspective, our world outlook. Um, Father, I'm reminded of the contrast in the Ecclesiastes of life under the sun where it feels meaningless and worthless and hopeless versus life in light of you. So, Father, if we haven't been mindful or acknowledging what life in light of you should be or is, we pray that you would reorient our hearts and minds this morning. Help us to live life in light of you. As Paul says in another letter, to pray without ceasing, to bring you into our every single moment living. Help us, Father, it's another ideal that's presented that I'm not living up to yet, but by your grace, help me to achieve and live up to. So Holy Spirit, have your way this morning. Speak to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. commentary of mine, and I've said this at least twice in this series, Christ is the very environment of the Christian's life. Believers live and move within the orbit of His will, His grace, His presence. We find life united by faith to Him, and we cannot live as we should apart from Him. Here's how I imagine 
my message. Here's how I felt the Holy Spirit moving. Here's how I see my life sometimes. We have this big, big God. This really big God. I mean, just look Revelation 4 with me. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they exist and came to be. And in the shadow of this God, I have the stupidity to say, to think, or to do, yeah, but I'm really upset with this person. There's a disconnect, isn't there? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Yeah, but I'm really worried about something. What? Do you hear the, the, the big God, full of wonder, universe maker, pleasures forevermore? Little me, I got problems. There's a big God and a little me. And I haven't worded it this way, but I feel like Paul has been trying to educate the little me's out there on how to put me in the proper perspective in comparison to the big God. In Philippians 4, 1 through 4, we have three consecutive repetitions of this secondary theme of Paul in Philippians. If the first theme is indeed joy, let me emphasize it for you. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, this is how you must stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true yoke fellow, to help these women who have labored with me for the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord. Always, I will say it again, rejoice. In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Paul is wanting to say something here. He's wanting to direct our attention, our thoughts, our attitudes, our focus, our living to be in light of Him. Not in light of what we're experiencing on a given day. In light of Him. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Euodia and Syntyche, two names for women. The church of, of Philippi seemed to have been founded with another gal named in Acts, Lydia. And uh, seeing how Lydia was named in Acts 16, and now Euodia and Syntyche are named here, it certainly gives rise to a theory that women were pretty prominent in the Philippian church. Perhaps... Lydia, uh, as she did, eventually opened her house to Paul and Silas. 
Some wonder if Euodia and Syntyche are two other prominent women who opened their homes for Christians to gather. That's just a theory. But now they're fighting in Philippi, right? Like Philippi First Baptist Church and Philippi First Methodist Church have a rivalry. Okay, sex did not, you know, exist back then, of course. But we don't know. It could have been two gals even in the same gathering. We just don't know. We also don't know if what the differences were between Yodia and Syntyche, or why it was a, a big enough difference that apparently someone had informed Paul and he felt he needed to address it. I'm guessing it was more than just a difference of opinion on some abstract idea. I'm guessing it had the potential to sow division and tension. And so Paul continues... Yes, and I ask you, my true yoke fellow, if you have an NIV, I think that's the only translation that uses a name that I can't pronounce for you, but that's because uh, the word is only used once in the entire New Testament. I'll give you a clue as to where it's at. Here. Okay. <laughs> and it does mean yoke fellow, but some wondered if it was a proper name. So maybe he's asking a particular person. We don't know. Whoever he's talking to, he wants them to help this woman, these women, who have labored with me for the gospel, along with Clement. There are old epistles, first and second Clement, and so this could be the one and same Clement who may have wrote. Uh, and then the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now I want you to notice the reframing. Maybe this should help for a, you know, if there's a future argument going on in the church. Notice how Paul reframes it. The reorienting of perspective. They need to agree in the Lord. And as Paul issues further admonishments, uh, admonishments along this desire for these women to agree, he reminds them because they've labored with me in the gospel, they, along with all who have labored with me, are in the book of life. In other words, there is a big God here, gals, in light of the little me's. And in reference to the book of life, it reminds me of another refocusing, another reframing of priorities from Jesus. He once told his disciples that they have power over all the evil forces in the world. Woohoo! Let's get a cake out. Let's celebrate. But then he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like, I'm still trying to figure out authority over all the evil spirits, but you want me to think about this, Lord. The gospel is too big. God is too big. The Lord is too big to let a, a disagreement so bitterness so division. Therefore, Paul says, don't let these ladies split up. Do what you can to bring them back into unity. It's two women arguing in the presence of the whole earth crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. wonder if you're catching on. I could come to church. I could Praise the awesome Creator. I could submit to the Sovereign of the universe. But that person really irritates me. You hear the disconnect? 
I'm not saying the division or the disunity is of no consequences, but I'm saying when you really compare, (laughs) when you really do the math, right? Agree with each other in the Lord. Rejoice. What? In the Lord. Always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He's bringing that Lord, that big God, into the equation again. That's silly, Paul. Again, this is a third sentence, a third exhortation where Paul ends with, in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Can I just say that no matter what is happening, in our private lives, in our public lives, in the church, in the town, in the nation, in the world, that in Christ there will always be reason to rejoice. There really will be. Of course, it was a very dark time, a cancer diagnosis, a miscarriage of a baby. But you know what? Even in that season and even in those dark days, I bet you this, the Lord blessed someone. The Lord saved someone from the trajectory of hell. The Lord met someone's need in a real way, a powerful way. And is that not worth rejoicing over? One of the notes I read says this, this joy is not a continuous smile, but a satisfaction in what the Lord has done and in His presence with us. And what does the Lord do in us? What does the Lord promise for us? Romans 8, if you never read that chapter, read it every night. I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. Or the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And we know that God works how many things? All things. Together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. What about the long list at the end of Romans? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A true journey into the Lord should bring nothing but rejoicing. It is easy to rejoice in the Lord when the Lord says, even your worst tragedies, your greatest flaws and sins in your darkest days, I have the resources to redeem. I will redeem and I shall redeem it if you are in me. In Him, it is easy to rejoice. But that nation's leader is a tyrant, but my all-universe's sovereign is a righteous king. But my sins have caused a mess, but my Savior's salvation has brought good out of it. But that friend has abandoned me, but my Creator will never leave nor forsake me. But that ailment is debilitating, but my God's grace is sufficient. You and I can rejoice in the Lord. And if we really believe it, and really live into it, Not just a, hey, nice words and a good pep talk, Pastor Kev. But if it becomes experiential, if it's truly lived out, what does that reality or that knowledge do for a person on the inside? 
If you truly believe that the news media's best attempts at fear-mongering are no match for the God who knew the news before you and they did, if you truly believe that your Creator knew the condition before the physician told you, Paul follows up rejoicing in the Lord with, let your gentleness be apparent to all the Lord is near. Gentleness, some translations say reasonableness or forbearance or moderation. Christian, are you approachable? One of my study notes said about this gentleness, that the Greek word denotes the generous spirit that rises above offenses or a forbearing spirit on which Jesus provides the supreme example. Such a person does not insist on his rights. Only such people learn the secret of joy. Gentleness is crucial for maintaining community. It is the disposition that seeks what is best for everyone and not just for oneself. Being on Facebook has made me a bad judge. Not, not, maybe, uh, not bad maybe in the incorrect or the, the non-discerning sense, but bad in the fact that I've developed a bad habit in judging people even if such judgments may be warranted or or correct. And the people I seem to judge most are other Christians. There are some people who post nothing but fear-mongering and harping, Christians should be upset that this is happening, and if Christians don't rise up and stand against that, they're not real Christians, and and I can't believe Christians, you know, and are watching this show, reading this book, celebrating this holiday, like Christians can do no good according to the select few whom God has bestowed His holy gift of judging on. And it really fits right into Paul's first admonition about agreeing in the Lord, right? Loving one another, having unity, being gentle. So in other words, I just want to type on every post, find a better hill to die on, you wacko. Okay, calm down, Kevin. But are you approachable? Are you gentle in spirit? Do you rise above offenses? Odds are, some other Christian will somehow offend you. I likely already have. You're welcome. I'm building your gentleness. Thank me later. But, I've just demonstrated that what offends me are other offended people, so I can work on this. Jesus is the supreme example. One case in point that I can think of is when two Pharisees drag in the women caught in adultery. Like half of that Facebook crowd would be gasping and gossiping and informing Jesus, do you know who this is? I can't believe those gutsy men brought her in. She needs to confess. It's about time. But Jesus has a gentle spirit. He's not quick to tear down the adulteress. He's not going to degrade her. She's already done a good job at that. And as much as the the, the men bringing her in, he's not like them. He's gentle. Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and sin no more. Something tells me that this sort of attitude that Jesus had is one that even an adulteress could find winsome or approachable. Do you hear where Paul says our gentleness came from? The Lord is near. It's that Lord thing again. People wonder, does Paul mean the Lord is near as in Judgment Day is coming, or is Paul just talking about Him being near all times and places? 
Probably a little of both, because both should contribute to our gentleness. Because if you or me, if we're in the shadow of the holy, awesome God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, majestic, and if we know that we hold the hand that holds the world, we can stand to be a little more gentle, right? We could stand to be a little bit more reasonable, approachable, or gracious. Reminds me of the servant Jesus talks about. I think we sang a song about it. Where the master forgave a massive debt. And then the servant who he forgave goes out and finds someone who was indebted to him. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Saying, pay back what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and begged him, have patience with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and recounted all of this to their master. And then the master summoned him and declared, You wicked servant! I forgave all your debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured, ouch, until he should repay all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Approachable, gentleness, moderation. If you're living in the light of the Lord, you and I can stand to be gentle, compassionate, rejoicing in the Lord, not uptight, not fear-mongering and fearful, right? Be anxious for nothing. One of those easy verses. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That Paul, he keeps doing it. He brings, he keeps bringing this God guy to bear in on our situations. He's a big God who can handle our big requests because those our requests are coming from the little me, right? Plus, did you hear it? Paul's getting to be a little bossy. He gave this as a command. Notice, he didn't suggest it's possible to be, nor did he gently nudge or persuade you should be. No, just be anxious for nothing. And in our day and age, in our culture, with the stressors we got, it can sound like, I'm sure this translates in some translations as build a tank. Like, where are the directions? What do you mean, be anxious for nothing? Where do I even begin? Sorry, I'm a little anxious. (laughs) In March of 2019, some of you might remember, it was a Saturday night where I, actually Christy was the one making the late night phone call. Remember, pastors are usually the ones who receive such phone calls, but we were calling Phil because I was having some heart palpitations. And I had a bit of hyperventilating going on. So Calvin's home. Christy's pregnant with Landon. So Phil comes over. He drives me to the ER late night one Saturday. And they start asking me questions. Now, sure, my coffee intake was probably somewhat to blame. (laughs) Lots of caffeine. But they started to just get a little bit of my history, my life. Well, I'm a pastor. I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old. I have another young one on the way. Expenses, stressors. And the doctors were saying, oh, pastor, you mean like counselor for a bunch of adults? 
And, uh, oh, you have another young one on the way, and you have expenses. Well, you know, there's nothing to be worried about, I'm sure. And come to find out, a week or two later, I found out I had a, a generalized anxiety disorder. You know what they prescribed? <laughs> Not coffee. They said this, we find that meditation or something like that is really helpful. And one of the doctors in Idaho County had the anti-political correctness to say, in other words, we want want to suppose, Pastor, that you don't pray enough, but if you don't, that really helps with anxiety. As if that's been stated before. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. Now, some like to dissect this passage. See, four items here. We got prayer, petition, thanksgiving, request. Here's the building blocks to prayer. I don't know why they sound like that. And if you want to go home and dissect it and think about it, go for it. If you're not praying right now, I dare you to do it. But I think there's a bigger picture at play. Paul is simply stating, take your anxiety and bring it to God. Right? You have a big, awesome universe maker who has said, I want you in a relationship with me. One quotation showed up in my sermon prep. Anxiety and prayer are more opposed to each other than fire and water. Christy and I were challenged lately from a conversation we had with someone, and it it made us consider our prayers. There are prayers in the Bible. There are liturgical, traditional prayers handed down from forefathers in the faith. There are prayers we pray routinely here at the church. And Christy and I used to pray a lot as we fell asleep to bed, but that kind of tapered off. Because did you hear what I said? Christy and I used to pray a lot as we fell asleep to bed. And I don't know about you, but if someone was talking to me, and they fell asleep because they were so bored with what they were saying, and tired too, I don't think I would be interested in a conversation. Now, the Pharisee part of me felt guilty and worried. Well, that's just not right. But the more I thought about it, Christy and I and I realized we already did something else ourselves. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not extinguish the Spirit. We both said to one another, you know, and this is how we worded it, I just feel like I have an ongoing conversation with God all day. Like, and we do. For me, it looks like I'm thanking him for the small and big things. I lost my keys. I happen to pray, Lord, can you help me find my keys? So I thank him when I do. I'm doing dishes. No one's home. I think about a friend who's struggling in the faith. I think to God, Lord, can you handle that person? Lead them to you. Help me to be who you want me to be in this situation. If, if I need to be a practical service, I'm going for a walk. I'm listening to a sermon on my earbuds, and something is stated that makes me think of a situation. So I pray right then and there, Lord, be in that situation. That just, whatever I pray throughout the day, without ceasing, thanking God in every circumstance. Plus, Christy and I started having our dinner meals with Jesus. Not just before the meal, but the whole time. Not just at the beginning, but we asked the boys at dinner time, what are you thankful for? Who can we pray for? What, what can we pray about? And we then we usually finish dinner with the Lord's Prayer. 
And the point being, to use the language I'm using the sermon, instead of carving out special times and occasions as, now we're praying. Now, no, we want to live life in light of the Lord. We want to bring Him into the conversation. We're not perfect. And as I have said in my prayer, here's the ideal. I'm still trying to live up to the ideal. But when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to dread, what is that in light of the Lord? Because if you bring your anxieties, if you bring your dread, your worries, you're introducing little me problems to a big God, right? You're saying, here's my bills. Do you have enough money, Jesus? Here's my ailments. Do you have an answer, mankind's creator? Here's the news for the day. Do you have an answer, King of Kings, President of Presidents? And you start weighing the sides. Eventually, one side, the big God, is going to far outweigh the other side. And what does that mean for my anxieties? What does that mean for my worries? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard should be a very uh, familiar in Paul's circumstances as he's writing. In fact, I'm not saying he did, but it could have been that all he had to do was look over if he was searching for words as he made it to this part of the letter, and he's in house arrest in Rome being guarded, the same word, by a Roman officer. And unlike the reminder of Paul's incarceration, we have a guard, a sentry of the heart and the mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, in light of the Lord, right? And he, like the guard shackled to Paul, Christ is shackled to our mind and heart. And he says, when you give me your anxieties, I'm guarding you from letting those destructive things in. Talk to me about it. And you and I just thought we got to trade our sins for his life, but we also get to trade our anxieties for his peace. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm beginning to think that... uh We get the better end of the stick when we trade with God. Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I think this is Paul handling those people out there who want plain, simple, practical, give me the list, Paul. Like, all of this sounds good, Paul. Let's not fight. Let's unite and agree in the Lord. Let's not despair or be disgruntled or unapproachable. But let's live in light of the Lord. Let's rejoice. Let's be gentle. Let's not be anxious. But where do I start? What do I do? How do I start heading in that direction to realize that I am in the shadow in the light of the big God? That little me is in the shadow of the big he. And here Paul lays lays down the road signs, the directions. It's about what's in the mind and what the body is imitating. This verse 8 is a conviction for me because I live up here. And if that surprises you, thank you for being here this first Sunday to hear one of my brainy sermons. But I really live up here, and I need to be careful with my mind. I have a tendency to start thinking, If I, I should say, if I start thinking about what isn't true or honorable or right or pure or lovely and so forth, 
I can start living in light of my sin or my shame or my guilt or in dread of something less than God. And something less than God is a very broad category. And like I said when Paul laid out the praying plan, the four words, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, requests, was Paul drawing up a blueprint, maybe more of a principle that says, you should pray to God, here are some starters. So here I think he's drawing up another principle because he lists seven things, which is a number of completion. But then he adds the modifier as whatever is a lot. Meaning, I think Paul is saying, whatever is positive and brings glory to God. Think about that. As in, here's seven. We Jews like to symbolize a completion of sorts with seven. But then the whatever term swims through these categories to bring up things that might be positive or brings glory to God. Think about such things. As one of my commentaries states, the virtues listed are not exhaustive but representative and they come to expression in countless ways. But let's unpack a few of these terms. The verse says true and the ethical sense. A lot of us... um, Sorry, I went over... The verse says true in the ethical sense. A lot of us listen to lies, and it does damage. Whenever you hear a lie, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be forgiven. Lies. No, Paul says think about truth. God made you fearfully and wonderfully. He saved you because he loves you. Think about what's true. Whatever is honorable, as in what's worthy of respect. You know, when I was growing up, and I still see it in generations below me, Sometimes the most dishonorable people, video games, movies, and stories seem to take holds of our thoughts, don't they? There are more honorable things to think about. How about what's right or just or upright? Or what's pure or holy, not impure, not filthy? What about what's lovely? Which this Greek word is used only here in the Bible, and I think we Protestants... Dare I say we, you know, plain loving Quakers miss out on this. You know, lovely means beautiful, attractive. Now, we do have a lovely place, and I can't wait for another week or so when I get to travel to Kamii and see the hills popping with reddening and and yellowing trees. That's lovely. God painted a beautiful landscape. But there is such a thing as God-glorifying art, God-glorifying music, God-glorifying architecture, lovely things. Think about such things that, Warm the soul with worship of it. Admirable. Pleasant to hear about. Every autumn, the, the, the history buff in me, I start to listen to stories about colonial America and the Mayflower pilgrims, not because I worship the people who founded the land, not because I find them guiltless, especially when it comes to their dealings with the natives, but there are things about their story that I find admirable. They wanted to worship God. Their faith made them move more than a couple of miles to the nearest church to find a pew to warm, right? Admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Why? Because I feel like Paul is laying down road to give us direction on how to get the little me in light of the big God. And if we we drive and we direct our minds into meditation on who He is, how He is glorified through the various ways and means that He is, hopefully we will be able to live life in light of the Lord. 
And Paul echoes, then echoes a theme that he mentions in chapter 3, and I mentioned last week, that perhaps when our minds are not in the right places, as in it's getting a little hard, Lord, I am a little anxious for something. Then Paul says in verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, imitate me. This is why we, we read the Bible for, yes, in, ingesting simple instruction, but often when we read narratives, we ask ourselves, did what that person do in this situation, was that right before God? Or not? And if it was right, can I imitate that? And it's also why we surround ourselves with godly people, because such godly people are walking down that same road that Paul has laid down to live life in light of the Lord. Does that make sense? About this idea of imitating, I mentioned last week that before I came here to preach, uh, there were some preachers that I listened to that I sought to imitate because of the impact they had left on me. And generally speaking, I'm not going to name names, but just generally speaking, growing up, I heard a lot of sermons that were problem or issue or practicality concerned. When you see a sermon entitled, Five Ways to Pray Better, or How to Overcome Addiction, or Winning Your Battles, or whatever, those are just titles, they're not demonstrative of what you'll hear, but suppose those titles are exhaustively true of what you might expect. And so a pastor opens up, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna pick five ways to pray better. And he opens up and he might say, people have trouble praying. How does the Bible tell us to pray? And then he opens up to the Lord's Prayer. Then he opens up maybe to the Apostles' Prayer in Acts 4. And maybe he goes to Daniel's willingness to pray when it wasn't popular. And then maybe he looks at a couple of Psalms. And then suppose he ends, ta-da, you didn't know how to pray before today, but now you can go home with the tools to pray with. The end, let's pray. It would be helpful. And hey, he used the Bible. It could be biblical. And I'm not saying there is even sin in it. But I compare that with preaching I was beginning to hear that wasn't problem or issue centered. It was God centered. And when the pastors opened the Bible, yes, issues and practical things of that nature did play a part. But the sermon and the thrust and the worship came into focus on God. Look at what God's capable of. Look at what God's doing here. Look at who God is. And then people would go home with a deep admiration and satisfaction of God instead of going home to pat yourself on the back because you got a new tool in your tool belt. God's your mechanic. I used this verse last week and it says, Therefore He, well, I guess I didn't put it up here, but therefore He, Christ, is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save completely, includes the tools you need. It doesn't say draw near to him through the Bible to learn five ways to pray better. Or Jesus, in speaking about anxiety, again we read this, but seek first five ways to pray better. Oh no. Be, seek first how to deal with your anxiety. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God 
And seek first His righteousness, not your own righteousness. That is where the unrelenting joy in light of the Lord comes from. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, Paul went through a few big, I don't know, categories, subjects of our lives. Whether it be relationship strife, whether it be anxiety in general, whether it be despairing and not rejoicing. And he told us in different ways than the author of Ecclesiastes told us, and he said, sure, if God is out of the equation, these things can be rough and tough. But if you live light in light of the Lord, we have no reason for anxiety. We can do better things such as agree in the Lord than to worry about what we disagree about. We can bring our requests to you. So, Father, I pray that if you have challenged us this morning, that we would go home trying to live life in daily conversation with you, conversation in the old archaic sense of living. Father, that we would walk with you hand in hand, that we would bring you into the equation on everything we do. Father, it's a tough ideal, and kind of like what we learned last week, if we trip and fall and maybe find ourselves stumbling and not living up to that ideal, just pick up and keep going. Because it's worth it to have you in our lives in every avenue. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.